Shelly, let's tell everyone about our new giveaway. Yes, if you are ready to learn your Enneagram type and what to do with it, we have a giveaway just for you. We're offering a free Enneagram typing package to a lucky someone who gives us a review on iTunes or Spotify. These typing packages are valued at $375 and include an interview, a proprietary test, and one follow-up coaching session. So you heard it here. If you go to iTunes or Spotify and search for The Big Self Podcast and leave us a review, you can enter into a giveaway to get a free Enneagram typing package. After you leave us a review, go to bigselfschool.com slash Enneagram giveaway and fill out our form so you can be entered to win. And one more time, that's bigselfschool.com slash Enneagram giveaway. Shelly, I love doing these podcasts when it's just you and me sometimes. I love our panelists, but it's great to have you here on Friday, the 13th, recording uh, some Q&A. Yeah, we've got a few questions that we're going to take. They're really good ones. Yeah, we um, in our Facebook group, we recently asked uh, what questions people have about the Enneagram. And so we've pulled some of those out. Um, I think I've got a couple on Instagram as well. And we're just going to try to do the best we can to answer them. Yeah, we're going to take these in pieces. Uh, And so I think, you know, basically what we're going to address this time around is... The history of the Enneagram. Someone asked, uh, can we give us a little more background on it? We're going to talk about what in the world are these subtypes about? They're, I think, just one of the most important parts. Mm -hmm, And it's kind of interesting the way that they were overlooked uh, historically in the history of the Enneagram for so long and why so many people miss, miss either understand them or are so focused on the wings when it's really the subtypes, I think, that tells us so much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we've yeah. also had a question about using the tool beyond um, discovering your type. Like, what's the point of it for uh, once you figure out your type, what do you do next? And why would anybody care to do that? So we're gonna, I love that question. We're, yeah, we're going to take these um, and yeah. We're all thinking it. We're all wondering, you know, what does this Enneagram do for me other than being able to, you know, just type myself? Yeah. Well, let's jump in to the first question. Could you give us a little more background on the history of the Enneagram? Um, And the the history of it actually is really interesting. It is. Yeah. And were you going to, I just, well, I want to like, so we're going to approach this from the idea of the traditional Enneagram and, you know, so the Enneagram of personality types, such as we, it's basically, it's a modern synthesis of a number of mm-hmm. ancient wisdom traditions. Uh, you know, and the person though that really deserves the credit is a guy that was beginning to do this in the 1950s, Oscar Ichazo. And Ichazo, he was born in Bolivia, raised there and in Peru. But as a young man, he moved to Buenos Aires, Argentina, to learn from a school of inner work he had encountered. And you know, afterwards, he journeyed to Asia, gathered knowledge there before returning back to South America. And then he began putting together this systematic approach uh, to all that he had learned. 
Uh, and, you know, this took a while, but eventually he created what was called the Erica School. I don't know if I'm even pronouncing that right. It could be Arica, but it's A-R-I-C-A. And this was a really fascinating time. And, and it was he was teaching in Chile in the 60s and 70s. He passed on this knowledge. A lot of people visited him. One very notable person was the psychologist and writer Claudio Naranjo, um, also John Lilly. They went there, actually, to Chile to study with Achazo and to experience just firsthand the methods for attaining the self-realization that he had attained. I have to just stop and say that you, over the last few weeks, it's been really fun to watch you dig into the history of the Enneagram. Thanks. So Chad has been reading a ton um, about Gurdjieff, which we'll talk about here in a minute, uh, really looking at how did did the Enneagram move from the East to the West? Yes. Um, How did the modern Enneagram that we know it today... Um, how right. how was that created? And that's and that's what you're talking about right now. Yeah. That's what Ichazo. So there's a a long history of Enneagram theory and Enneagram kind of philosophy that's based on oh, a yeah. lot of these ancient wisdom traditions. But it was Ichazo in the 50s and 60s that really. Um, created this kind of nine typology that we think about today. So it was a serious system of inner work. uh, And so like any inner work kind of school, you know, there's a complex body of teachings and it it touches on psychology, cosmology, metaphysics, spirituality, uh, and some of these things. And of course, you know, I think now that so Gurdjieff, George Gurdjieff gets a lot of credit. He is a predecessor. He was born, we think, in 1872. So in the early 1900s, the 1920s, a lot of that, he he is credited appropriately with reintroducing the Enneagram symbol to, uh, you know, basically to the modern world, such as um, we know it. But, you know, primarily for Gurdjieff, he was teaching the Enneagram through these sacred dances or movements and other influences, influences that he uh, had experienced, uh, but not so much the traditional typing of the Enneagram, such as we understand it. Right. We have to think about Gurdjieff um, at the turn of the century you know the Sufi tradition, the mystics, like that, like that's where he uh, lived, and kind of that's where his thought and yeah. the work he did in the world was really this kind of mystic tradition. So he was teaching a lot of of what we would think about, like Enneagram theory and philosophy, um, from that re- that mystic tradition. It wasn't until much later that we, yeah. um, that Ichazo put this into the, the typology that we know. I, I want to say this, this piece of it too. I got this from Sandra Maitre, um, oh, yeah. her book. She says in there, and I just think this is fascinating, that um, one of Gurdjieff's students, actually, J.G. Bennett, Okay. Um, he reports, and I guess this is from Gurdjieff, that um, the Enneagram symbol was developed in the 15th century by mathematicians in the Sarmoon, I guess I'm saying Sarmoon, Sarmoun Mystery School to express the principles symbolized 
by the newly discovered decimal point. I love that. So it's this whole um, representation of these mathematical laws. So there's the law of three, the law of seven, the law of one, which is, you know, represented in, in the circle. And so it's, um, there is this kind of sacred, mystical overlay mm-hmm. of these mathematical principles. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, it's really where this, the, the theory started and then developed, you know, over many, many decades. To add a couple of other things to that, I think we also, Pythagoras is credited as bring you know, as kind of uh, drawing up that very first, uh, the symbol of it. Um, and you know, there, you know, there are a lot of ancient traditions that the traditional Enneagram draws from, such as mystical Judaism, Christianity, a lot of, you know, um, desert fathers type of stuff mm-hmm. from them, um, who Gurdjieff was very influenced by as well. Also Islam, Taoism, Buddhism, yeah. and other ancient Greek philosophy. So, I mean, and in, in terms of that ancient Greek philosophy, we could say particularly Socrates, Plato, and the Neoplatonists. So it does stretch back, but let's give some credit where credit is due. The traditional Enneagram, such as we understand it now, Oscar Echazo. Yeah, and and I, you know, he's a he was a philosopher. Um, he actually died, Just died last year, yeah, in twenty twenty. Yeah. So was a philosopher, and so if you think about the philosophical lens that he looked at this from, um, you know, and was able to really, well, and blend a lot of what you were just saying, a lot of philosophy and psychology and... um, Metaphysics. Yeah, and and to put this into this working um, theory with this symbol, I think is really, um, blows my mind, actually, that somebody could do that. I think just to see where it is now, the evolution and um, credit... Claudio Naranjo a lot. He's the, what I think of as the subtype guy, (laughs) which we'll talk about subtypes in a second, but you know, he was a psychologist and so a Chilean psychologist. And, um, so then to have that evolution of like really looking at, um, psychological personality development, of taking a lot of object relations theory. So ways that the personality is formed in your early holding environment. So he kind of came in and had this psychological um, perspective. And so to to see the strain of all these hands and minds working on the Enneagram through hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands, uh, is really fascinating to me. Yeah, you know, I I have to say that I too was curious about the history of the Enneagram because, you know, we get a lot of, you know, like sort of shallow new age-ish applications uh, to it. And so when you like just kind of cursorily search around, you know, you see a lot of not so informed people just talking about it. And I'm like, hey, Besides even the secondary sources here and some people who wrote maybe some, you know, nice books on it, like, let's dig in and let's find out where this stuff goes. And it's been kind of a fascinating journey discovering it. And I I have gotten like lost in the forest for the trees reading The Fourth Way right now. It's dense. It's thick. That's a Gurdjieff book. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about Naranjo as we head into the question about subtypes. Let's do this. Is there anything else you wanted to say about the history? Uh, No, I think that you've got a great segue there. 
Yeah. So um, my teacher, Beatrice Chestnut, um, is, I, I believe, credited right now with really um, reigniting the conversation around subtypes and what is a subtype and how is a subtype created. And so she learned from Claudio Naranjo um, what subtypes are and he you know he was back in the 70s she directly learned from him a little bit yeah right? yeah she um she tells a story that she was at a conference and um he and all of his associates were speaking and teaching on the subtypes and she was blown away because she was didn't hadn't ever really heard of this like how do i not know about all these these 27 subtypes um and discovered her subtype in that conference and um it has a great story around um how she discovered it and that set her down a path of really bringing this information and this theory uh back into the conversation so he you know back in the 70s he was teaching on the the three instinctual drives that every human or every animal i will say you know has some has varying degrees of these three instincts to survive, and that is the self-preservation instinct, the social instinct, and the sexual instinct, or the one-to-one bonding. And so, you know, identifying those patterns of survival in in our animal wisdom, and then really understanding how that mixes with the dominant type creates what we know as a subtype. And so what's interesting, the reason we don't see this in modern Enneagram theory very much, except for, um, I think, people that have really dug into the work, like Beatrice Chestnut um, and Uranio, um, is because Claudio Naranjo did not want it to be taught in America. So when the modern Enneagram came to the U.S. Right. in the 70s, it, it, it was uh, left out of that migration because he he appropriately, you know, or not without, you know, good reason thought that we would, uh, Westernize it or McDonaldize it. McDonaldize it. I've heard that he said that. I don't know if that was true or not, but, um, so when we're talking about, you know, here in 2021, we're talking about Enneagram theory and personality development and how do you use the Enneagram? Um, it is in the U S this subtype, piece of the conversation is often left out. Yeah. Other parts of the world where Naranjo did teach is they are very, um, they're more open and used to this concept of subtypes, the, you know, the instinctual drives creating the subtypes. It's well, just in the U S we, we've missed out on that. Should we give our audience some definable characteristics of what each of the types are? Well, well not types, these subtypes are, you know, and by the way, could you actually, Shelly, could you help us? First of all, what is the difference between, subtype and instinct. I hear these wor- these terms used interchangeably. Can you help everybody kind of get a little more clarity on the difference between that? Yes, I can okay. try because it is complicated. Like the, huh. the vernacular um, gets a little wonky and yeah. different schools of thought use the same words differently. That's what I've found. Yeah. yeah. So the way that I think about it, because this is how I've been taught by my teachers, 
Um, the instincts, we have three basic animal instincts. And this is the sexual, the yes. self-pres, yes. and the social. So really quickly, um, we all have a dominant instinct. We all have all three of them to yes. some very We have degree. a stack, actually. There's an order. to Yeah, yeah. there's a sequence of we have a dominant instinct that um, oftentimes kind of operates at an unconscious level for us. Sure. And is very kind of we over-index on that instinct. And that's the one we're talking about when we're identifying that it's the dominant instinct. You have a dominant instinct. So for you, your dominant instinct is the sexual energy. For me, the dominant instinct is the self-preservation energy. Right. And so the, you know, the sexual energy is they're a little more risk taking. They're a little more like just jump on in, be an activator. Yeah. They're activator They're They can be a little more assertive. Um, because if you think about the sexual instinct to survive is I have to go out there and have to f- connect with someone uh, to mate eventually, but that's that the energy is like a forward, <laughs> right. it's like a forward energy Yes, to go out there and kind of uh, put myself in a situation where I'm going to meet somebody and then that will ensure my survival. Do, do you think that um, a sexual instinct drive people, are, are we more intense yeah, I think there is uh-huh. a lot. Of, I've as I started learning about the instincts and the subtypes, um, a lot of times we mistype ourselves, be thinking like, "Well, I'm a an eight because I'm oh like sure intense. right well, right no like you could be a sexual dominant instinct of any type. I know. This is part of where this instinct like comes in and really helps define once you have a general sense of your type. So for you, for a while, I thought you were an eight because you do have this intensity. Challenger energy. Yeah. And then as we started looking at, oh no, that's the energy. The sexual energy can look like that. Um, Right. And so the self-preservation for me... Um, self-preservation energy is just like what we think. It's it's the the instinct to preserve yourself, to be safe in yourself. To, yes. So self-preservation types, um, we we do a lot with resource management, and yeah. so things that I never really understood about, like why I love a really full pantry (laughs) (laughs) in a full fridge. Like there's something so satisfying about that. Well, there's this instinct in me that it connects with survival. Um, we are, we are wired to like, uh, time management. We're nesters. And so we're always thinking about how can I control my environment or make things more comfortable? And y'all tend toward anxiety. We do. Um, self-preservation, Subtypes um, or in the dominant instinct. Yes, the instinct, not look, the subtype. We can, haven't defined that yet. Can look uh, like some people will think they're a six. Oh, I have an, I have anxiety. I must right. I must be a six. Well, no, you could be a self preservation dominant instinct of any type. <laughs> right. That's right. And they're a little uh, like self preservation too, which is what my uh, my subtype is. We're a little more. Um, a little more anxious than the other two subtypes of the two. Okay, now let's let's hit the social, and then I have a question. Yes, so yeah. the social, uh, which I have a really strong social instinct as well. That's your number two. That's my my next in the sequence. For in- me, it's the least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we're the social instinct is think of it like a herd. 
mentality. It's oh, very yeah. Thinking like of the group first. very oriented to the group. Yes. Other like, referencing. Who's in, who's out. Yeah. Um, how do we include or exclude as the case may be. Mm. Uh, but really oriented toward this kind of global collective like crap like a group mentality. Think of your stereotypical um, uh, sorority uh, president. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know. Really. I, um, I don't think so. <laughs> they could be anything. Absolutely. Yes. My question is though, like when I was first learning of these instincts, not calling them subtypes, um, these instincts, I was like, oh, there's almost like, oh, the sexual one-on-one is obviously more introverts and the self-pres is kind of in the middle and the social is clearly the extroverts, but that is not necessarily the case at all, not right? At all. Yeah. So let's help clarify it a tiny bit more before we finally get to what in the world well, do let me we ask, mean by subtypes? Yeah, let me ask you this. What made you believe even for a moment that the sexual <laughs> for were more introverted? Because it just seems obvious, like sexual one-on-one, like I, at a party, like I'm going to like find that person, you know, not even consciously, Okay. you know, we're like, I'm, I'm going to find the interesting person where we can like not be shallow and we can have like a cool conversation. That's kind of the four in me as much yeah, as anything. So that's what I would say. A lot yeah. of those behaviors that we see, mm-hmm. not only in ourselves but in other people, is a combination of yeah, yeah. the instinct and the. I mean, it's part of the well, personality actually, structure. I, I think that's a good transition to now tell us what subtypes are because you're kind of that's what you're kind of starting to define. Yeah. So real quickly though, okay. like. Any type, any subtype of any dominant instinct can be extrovert or introvert. Nice. So I'm glad I asked that. That's one thing um, that I think is important. For our audience. Yeah. Yeah. So the subtype, the way that we come up with subtype and, um, and I'm learning about subtypes is you take this dominant instinct. So for you, sexual, for me, self-preservation. Yep. And it mixes up. It's like a mashup between that instinct Uh and the passion of our dominant type. And it creates this kind of. But it is our dominant type. Like, if I'm a four and my dominant instinct is sexual, then. So, so you're saying that that combination is my subtype. Yeah. The way that, okay. that we think about subtypes is it's like you're as a four, your passion is envy. And so when the sexual energy of your instinct mixes up with the envy, it looks a specific way for a sexual four. Self-preservation envy looks a specific way for the self-preservation four. Social fours, you know, when you mix up yeah. the envy with the social instinct, yeah. that looks a specific way. Okay, that's that's good. That's yeah. good. That's clear. That's, I think that's bringing some clarity to. So it's really this, um, you know, think about your the passion of your type is the emotional patterns, kind of this unconscious emotional pattern. Uh, that operates on this subliminal level. And so when you started working with the Enneagram and found out that envy was the passion of the type four, you really were like, I, I, I didn't I, want that. No, and but you started to see it. Yeah, I have. And so when you, you know, the sexual four, the sexual energy of, of the type four of envy 
it's almost like, and you didn't like hearing this, but this is true, when you're operating in personality and you feel that envy, yes. you it's almost like lobbing it outside of yourself. And that's the sexual energy. Yeah. So the self-preservation for really holds it in. Uh, and that's what self-preservations do. We kind of pull it in. against like, yeah. I've got to protect myself. I've got to kind of yes, you do. hunker down here. Um, and so that, that subtype's going to look different with the, the self-preservation for. The countertypes, you want to talk about that? Well, let's just touch on it because I don't want to overwhelm everyone as we're defining some things. And that is a bit of a rabbit hole. Yeah. Well, I think it's important. Okay. And here's yeah, why. Absolutely. Because I think that a lot of people who are a countertype yes. to their type, they don't even know it because they don't look like what we stereotypically think of for every type. Okay. So let's back up because we're, now we're saying countertype, but we're talking about what if you are um, some given number, one through nine, and your instinct of one of those three instincts runs sort of Against. against the expectation of what you would think of. And you are actually a countertype. So let's use you as an example. You are a two yeah. self-preservation. So I'll say this, like when yeah. I was learning about the two, it didn't quite fit. Right. It didn't, like I'm not a natural helper. I don't, I'm not oriented and like thinking about how do I help people? <laughs> no, in fact, not. I really so, r- like pull in from that. Right. As I'm um, like making lunches for the kids in the morning and then I'm making <laughs> breakfast and you're just sitting there on your phone. Like, well, that's something different, I think. Oh, you do. Okay. Um, well, you're, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I think it like, I'm not a casserole maker. I'm not <laughs> <No>. like, <laughs> uh, I feel a burden a lot of times when I'm asked to do stuff and help. Right. So I was like, that doesn't really fit me, this giver, helper. So, but when I learned about the the self-preservation instinct, so I, like it goes against the passion of pride, which is the passion for the two is pride. And so the, the self-preservation too looks a little, um, a little childlike and a little bit more like, well, I want you to take care of me. <laughs> like yeah. I want you to come and help me. Um, and I was like, when I got real honest with myself, I was yeah. like, oh, I do that. Oh my gosh, I do. I do this like, I can do it. I'm more aware of it now, but this learned helplessness thing where I want you just to like take care of something, Solve just it, do it. Make the decisions. Uh, I remember when I was um, at Torch with our my tech company and I would just kind of throw up my hands with any kind of technical problem and I didn't want to like deal with it. I would make other people jump in and I would be like, someone, my computer's messed up. Someone fix my computer. And instead of like jumping in and trying to figure it out myself. So I saw these emotional patterns that are not stereotypical of a two. And so when you're, when you're learning about your dominant instinct and how it mixes with your, your type, your dominant type, it could be a counter type. And so a lot of times people mistype 
thinking they're like, you know, whatever, I'm, I'm this. We're actually, they're a countertype of a completely different number. And that is where the uh, instincts become uh, particularly fascinating in truly interpreting uh, this, this, the complexity of our personalities, such as we're operating in them, however consciously or unconsciously. And so in a sense, I think it's fair enough to say that we have, we're kind of talking 27 types. Now I don't want to make it overly complicated. Yeah. You know, well, and, and there's s- more than that. If you throw in the sequence. <laughs> oh, right. The stack. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm calling it kind of the, your, your stack of like, what's the order of those instincts and how do they come to uh, basically, you know, subtype you for, right. for lack of a better. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. So real quickly. So uh-huh. I am um, joining my teacher, Beatrice, in this um, cavalry of talking about subtypes and teaching more about them and trying to understand them myself uh, because I see... Bring in the cavalry. I see it so misunderstood and misused. And, and I'm, you know, I try to kind of um, compassionately challenge people a little bit. Nice. So, so much of what's happening around subtypes is that people be- are saying their dominant wing is their subtype. And I just, um, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's because we don't have this, uh, neuron hose theory really integrated and well-developed. And so I'm, uh, I really want people to start thinking instead of what's my dominant wing, and we do have a dominant wing, yeah, typically. Yeah. If we've not, but we're been, not talking about wings on this segment. I, the, start asking instead, what's my dominant instinct? Uh, that is going to give you a lot more information yes. for your, your subtype. Totally agree. And, you know, I think this is a perfect segue to our third and final question for today. And that is, because what is the value or point of the Enneagram, uh, you know, besides just recognizing your type? Yeah. And, and I love this question because I think it's something that we all consciously or unconsciously wonder about when we're doing this typing. Is it just a fun little game? Is it just another, my, every time you hear someone writing about it, it's like, well, is this kind of just Myers-Briggs? No, this is a system. This is way, way uh, different and much deeper. It alone is not the point. And so as I, but. But I think it's like one of those things, like the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And that's the beginning of all wisdom. Mm-hmm. And I, as I, the more I have begun to learn about the system around which we're trying to develop self-awareness and to know ourselves better, I realize more and more that the Enneagram and the typing of our, our individual self and our personality patterns is a doorway to deeper Mm -hmm. self-awareness. It is just the beginning. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, right? But it's like, it is not an end in of itself. It's not a, um, a party game trick for us to like know our types. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the first thing when someone asks me that, that's Mm -hmm. question, um, and I think it's a fair question. Like, what oh, yeah, is, you know, question. now that if I know my type, what, what then? Like, what do I do with this? And um, the first question I ask back, or I want to know anyway, is are you interested in self development work? Right. And fair like, enough. Yes. If yes, you are, then this is probably the most efficient 
um, powerful transformational tool that you can use. And if, efficiency is a fair, you yeah, know, like it's, I, it sounds maybe discursive and like it's oh so complex, but we are complex and this is a system and therefore it does increase the efficiency in which you can grow and, and learn about yourself in a deeper yeah, way. Yeah, once you identify this type and subtype, and, and that's where I think it can be complex. And I, I think using a coach or some resources is helpful um, because there's so many pieces of it. But once you figure out your specific type and subtype, you have a very specific set of like instructions for your personal growth. And yes. so you don't really have to focus on every type and subtype at that point, unless you want to. Um, but knowing your kind of personalized pathway to grow does shortcut a lot of other, like I, I've told you people this, like I was in therapy, I've been in therapy many, many years, and this has definitely helped me shortcut, uh, giving me a language, giving me tools yeah. that I never was able to use before. So, let, and well, let's um, let, let me get a little Gurdjieffian here for a minute. Um, I just wanted to say that <laughs> we are um, we're asleep to ourselves. That's one of the big things that he. We're all from birth to death. Most of us are asleep. The vast majority of humanity, and it, it kind of explains a lot of human behavior. If you really are like, we're asleep to ourselves. What does he mean by that? You know, basically we're machines and we're living on autopilot and whether, you know, we don't need to deep dive into all the different ways that we are, but once you begin to recognize your habits and patterns, the negative emotions you get trapped into, uh, over identifying with things, we you just begin, we are living our lives very unconsciously. And you're absolutely right, Shell, uh, that I uh, totally agree. I You can't do this on your own. Gurdjieff makes that very clear on a number of very beginning points. You do need a mentor or a coach or you need others. And he's like, yeah. he, he uses this metaphor of, um, you know, being in jail. It's sort of like the allegory of the, the cave allegory, mm -hmm. but he uses this allegory of the jail where most people are inside it and most people will always remain inside it. But a few people yeah. decide that they want to be free. Well, what do you ha can you get free on your own? No, you need aid and assistance. You need another, a group of people and you need someone on the outside of the jail who can help the group of people get out of the jail. That's, that's, that. that's it in a nutshell. So you need three things. You need the, to, to determine that you want to be out of jail. You need others with you in jail who want to get out of jail and you need someone on the other side of the jail who can help free the it. group. Yeah. 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 I had a client, um, I think last week I was talking with and that, um, they asked, like we were talking about the type and kind of the path of, of becoming less happy. And she was like, why would I want that? Right. And I was like, I, I know, like it feels like, why would I become, become less happy? And I, that I, and what I told her is like, it's, it's kind of like trading in fake happiness for real happiness. And in yeah. that process, you become a whole person instead of living in this like one ninth of a way of seeing the world and being in the world, it completely opens your heart up and your head up and your body up 
to be, live out of all the dimensions. I like that you say that. And let me just add in right there briefly that, you know, another way of answering this question of what is the value or point of the Enneagram, the idea is to see yourself in personality and how you behave and become more aware of that so you aren't just focus you aren't just functioning in personality mm-hmm. right so that's it's not just like yay yeah. i'm a four right yeah, yeah it's like well you know that's where your you could say trauma came from that's your that's how your personality shaped you're trying to develop self-awareness to grow out and grow up and out of your particular yeah. personality characteristics. Yeah, and when when we say impersonality, we're talking about kind of the egoic protective shell or structure that you operate in. So we just happen to label it right. this these different types. But when you're in when I'm in personality, I am operating almost unconsciously. It's becoming more conscious, but unconsciously in this kind of two-type structure. The way I see the world, my core motivations, my core fears are all kind of assembled under this type. So so that's the thing. When, when Chad's saying in personality, that's what he's he's referring to. I do want to say one thing about this. Like, yeah. um, I would um, implore people, if you're only using the Enneagram to determine your type, don't. Like if that's all you're using it for, right? I I would go so far to say that that could be dangerous. So not only do I believe it's unhelpful because it's it can be reduced to a party game or it can be just limiting. um, I think it's it could be dangerous because then we double down on our personality, and I see that happening where it's like I'm a six. This is just what I do, or I don't. So when you when you use the Enneagram, which is a really powerful tool, but you don't use it for what it's intended, which is to, it's intended to grow you, then I think it not only can be limiting, but it can be destructive um, in the way that you hurt yourself by doubling down on that personality, but also how you do that. We do that to other people. Yeah. I I think that, you know, there's plenty of typing, really well-researched typing inventories that are out there that can tell you a lot about the way that you function in a pretty particular way. Uh, I won't name them necessarily, but there's plenty of them that are really effective for if you just kind of want to know the way that you behave. Mm -hmm. The Enneagram, it does does type you and then it wants to take you out of, you know, identify blind spots and help you grow into a deeper and richer person. You know, I will, I don't know how much more you want to add, but I will just say that Gurdjieff himself did not make a lot of promises to his students, such as I understand. He basically said, if yes, if you want to learn with me, you are going to It's going to be hard, but you will wake up to yourself Hmm. and you won't live like the vast majority of human beings who are really asleep and you won't, you will die more of an honorable death and you will not die like a dirty dog. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he said. Yeah. I remember that quote he's told me about. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the, I just want to add a little personal. <laughs> so I don't know if those are real attractive benefits right? to people. You won't, you won't die like a dirty dog. People are like, I just want to be a better leader. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I uh, yeah, I, I want to just say one thing about, um, this has probably been the most, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, but most transformational thing for me was seeing the blind spot of my pride and seeing it at play so much. And so just as we've been doing this podcast, you know, for the last, I don't know how many minutes, 40 minutes, um, I've been aware of my pride. Like I'm sitting here and I've got this inner observer (laughs) who is... Really? Yeah, who's like pointing out where this uh, pride comes up for me. And it's um, it comes up in needing to believe you know believe that I'm better than I I am that I know more than I do, and so I'm approaching this I'm I'm aware that I'm approaching this conversation uh, with some pride, and so I'm trying to come at it more with some humility. And I think and that's just my growth path is what you know as a two, getting more and more. Um, comfortable with not knowing, having a learn a beginner's mind, um, being humble, and so that's I'm aware that it's something that even in this conversation has happened, and I've seen it come out in my blind spots, and so that's the last thing I guess I would offer people who are not sure they want to really engage with the enneagram is that it reveals things that you don't even know are sabotaging you, like things that mystify you or you're like, why, like, why does that keep happening? So it, it begins to reveal these blind spots, these kind of shadow behaviors yeah, and then gives you a way to work on them. Like, I don't want to keep self-sabotaging. Well, go ahead. And so I'm yeah. going to do X, Y, Z to overcome that. And so this is the tool that can really just shine a a flashlight on that. And you know what? Let's actually, so all of that sounds kind of serious and, and it can be, and it can be hard work, but you know, like, um, one of the most serious students of Gurdjieff's, uh, PD Uspensky, who wrote the fourth way, uh, based upon conversations that he had with, uh, with Gurdjieff basically asks that question at one point, he's like, why is this system so cheerless. And Gurdjieff goes, what do you mean? It's not. There can be cheerless dispositions or points of view, but this is actually the opposite because it's trying to free you from the ways that your behaviors are chained. And it's trying to help you realize basically a much deeper, more sense of freedom. And, uh, and I just really appreciated that he said that on a number of occasions mm-hmm. where it's like when things kind of get, wow, man, this sounds really serious and heavy, man, you know, or whatever. It's like, actually it's, it's not, you but can, you can take it heavy. Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And I think there are moments in the, in the journey that are hard and transformation is, is usually hard. We Very learn the so. most when yeah. there's some suffering, Gosh, we don't have to stay there, and that's why I, th- I, I think it's tra- you know trading in this fake happiness for real joy, like true joy. And so, having moments of um, and it's usually like quiet moments of real joy, where it's just it's not like a a covered up kind of manufactured fake feeling. It's actually, and that's when you're know you know like okay, if something's growing in me here that is real and genuine and it's effortlessly kind of coming out of me 
That's great stuff. And on that note, I think we want to conclude our Q&A for this Maybe time. Maybe we'll do this again. I think this I, is This fun. is fun, especially when the questions are as good as they have been. Uh, let us know how we're doing. And thanks for tuning in. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Big Self Podcast. We're so grateful for your presence with us. And we hope that each of these episodes helps with what you're needing most right now. Right now, I have a few remaining spots open for my one-on-one leadership coaching. You can find out more at bigselfschool.com slash coaching. Also, if you want to go to our bigselfschool.com page, you can get our free ebook, How to Build Self-Knowledge, Discovering Who You Are. And that's a great beginning point for launching in a whole new direction of personal growth. And of course, don't forget about the Enneagram as a great way to dive deeper into your self-development. Go to bigselfschool.com slash Enneagram and you can download our free guide there, How to Unlock Your Potential with the Enneagram. We also offer team trainings for your organization and individual typing packages as a way to discover your type and begin using the Enneagram for personal growth. And also, if you're in Chattanooga, you can sign up for my Enneagram 101 class on August 26th at The Chattery. Go to thechattery.org and you can register there. Lots going on. Thank you for tuning in this week.